Our scripture reading for this morning is found in Genesis chapter 3. Verses 8 through uh, 15 and then 22 through 24. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And in verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that was, that was turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. God. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, good morning, everybody. Uh, it's good to be with you. Uh, as I mentioned, my name is Reed, uh, and it's a joy to be here as we, as, as Patrick mentioned, kind of wrap up this sermon series. Uh, if, if you're new with us or if this is your first Sunday, again, we're glad you're here. Uh, but we have been going through this series called A Story Worth Living, where we have essentially tried to look at these underlying narratives, these, these assumed beliefs about the way the world is and how it functions, and, and, and kind of essentially looking at them and saying, are these true? Where have they come from? And, and do they actually help clarify and explain the world that we inhabit and how we live in it? And so we've been looking at these various narratives, challenging them, but, but at the same time, kind of be, following this format, maybe you've noticed it, of this, this yes, but no, but yes. And what I mean by that is we want to affirm that there is a sense of, of goodness and truth in many of these narratives, but that they aren't sufficient in and of themselves in providing the clarity and truth and guidance that we need in life. And, and they really, in some sense, point to our, our greater need for a greater truth that we find in the gospel. And so our hope is that through this series, it has not only been kind of mentally challenging for you and, and cultivating new ways of thinking, but, but also giving us a framework for how do we engage in conversation with people of differing viewpoints in ours? How do we begin in conversation with a yes instead of starting with where we are different? And so this morning, we wrap the series up by looking at this final narrative, which claims newer is better. 
Newer is better. And, and, and one thing we've done in this series as well, and we're doing this today, is, is if you have questions that come up in, this, in the sermon, uh, please feel free to text those questions in. On Monday afternoon, we do a little live Q&A on Facebook Live, and so you can text questions to that number. And we'd love to dialogue and interact with you if you have questions that come up from uh, the conversation this morning. Uh, so, so really, this is the narrative we're looking at as we wrap this series up. Newer is better. And, and, and what I mean by that, it's not so much like, like shiny things and brand new things are what's better, but it's more of this way of looking at the world as if the world was like an operating system on your computer. And, you know, as, as an old opera, operating system kind of goes out of date, it needs to be updated, it's got glitches and there's some bugs to work out. And so really what we just need is a new operating system that will solve the problems of the old one and progress us forward. But I, I think that there's... There's a limitation to that way of looking at the world. I wonder if it actually is the best way of assessing what is wrong with the world. Are we diagnosing the problem properly? Is newer always better? Do our solutions solve all of our old problems and progress us forward? And, and, and the reason, I mean, in some ways, this narrative, it's, it's not really satisfying because if you think about like the iPhone, for instance, like the new iPhone is coming out and there's all this excitement. And with every new iPhone, there, you, you know, the iPhone in your hand that you're reading the Bible on, right? Uh, and, you know, the iPhone in your hand, it was amazing a year ago. But now all of a sudden that this new one's coming out, it's like this thing is just a useless paperweight. And, and, and the new one's going to solve all the problems for, from my old phone. And, and I'm going to be able to be more efficient and productive. And I'm going to be able to play Candy Crush in, in really incredible ways. You know, like we get so excited but inevitably when the new one comes it has its own problems and it doesn't actually solve all the problems of the old system and in fact this is I'm not kidding when I as I was writing this line my iPhone gave me this notification about the new iPhone Apple's iPhone 10 hit another production snag related to components needed for its facial recognition technology which is just funny like there's still problems that come with our new solutions they may solve some of the old problems but they inevitably bring with it a set of new problems that need to be solved. And, and this is inevitable in so many ways. I mean, we see this in various forms of technology. Uh, and we see that even, even when we think we've advanced and made progress, when we look back, we see, man, we were so wrong about this thing. I mean, like, there, there are times we were so convinced that this is right, this is true, and just it takes another 10 years to realize, man, we were way off, which is exactly what this very scientific video points out for us. Take a look. Don't eat that food. Who are you? What are you doing in our house? I'm from the future. I'm here to warn you, don't eat that food. Why not? The eggs, they're full of cholesterol. What? Cholesterol, it, <laughs> it clogs up your arteries. Eating even just one egg can dramatically increase your chance of heart attack. Don't eat eggs. Godspeed. Well, I guess I better take those eggs. Wait! Stop! You're back! Yeah. We were wrong about the eggs. <laughs> How? Well, it turns out there's two types of cholesterol. There's good cholesterol and bad cholesterol, and <laughs> eggs actually have both. So you can eat eggs, but just don't eat the egg yolks. So stick with the egg whites. Thank yes, thank you. Godspeed! Again? Yeah. 
Yeah, okay, so it turns out that the amount of cholesterol in a food doesn't actually affect how much cholesterol ends up in your blood. The <laughs> eggs are probably fine. In fact, we sort of don't even know what cholesterol is. But the steak! You can't eat the steak! <laughs> oh, it's so good. That's so good. Now, obviously, that's a little bit over the top. It's a bit tongue-in-cheek. But, but the, the point is, is that there is a sense of which we think we've progressed and we've solved the problems, but just it takes a little bit of time to realize we didn't solve all the problems. We've created new problems. And, and I'm, not, I'm not getting up here suggesting, like, therefore, let's burn our phones and get rid of technology and churn our own butter and not wear clothes with zippers. Like, I'm not, I'm not like, advocating no technology. But what I am asking us to consider is that do we actually believe that, that the progress of humanity and, and advancements in technology and medicine and science, do we actually believe they are solving the problems that plague us? Are they our ultimate solution? And maybe even to back up, do we even know what our ultimate problem is? So again, I'm not bashing technology. I mean, I'm preaching from an iPad for crying out loud. So it's a good thing to embrace technology. But with that being said, I think we should recognize that that just because something is new doesn't mean that it's bad. There, there is a great deal to celebrate in the newness of what we create in this world. There's much to celebrate and give thanks to God for in the way in which He is at work, I believe, through the work of so many of us. The way in which we are inventing and creating and investing and developing and producing products and services and ideas that are truly leading to the flourishing of humanity in the world. There's so much to celebrate. I mean, when you think about, I mean, the printing press that exists that makes our lives easier, that has progressed. I mean, we think about penicillin and highways, Sky Mall magazine, and like, you know, we have the Snuggie. It's a great thing, you know? There's so much to celebrate in our world. But, but in all seriousness, we have, we've seen such progress, and it's worth celebrating and saying, man, through all of these new developments, life is in many ways better. In fact, there was an article on, on Vox.com that showed these 26 different charts and graphs of the way in which the world has gotten better over time. And they document how, how there are less people living below the poverty line, fewer people living in hunger. It, it, it documented it said people are getting taller. I was like, oh, okay, that's, we'll, we'll celebrate that, I guess. I don't know why, but, but there is progress for sure. And, and so I want us to see that just because something is new doesn't mean that it's bad. In fact, I mean, when you understand the opening chapters of Genesis... The, the expectation is that God has on humanity is to create new things, to continue to create and recreate, to develop, to invent, to progress, that this is an expectation that God had for us. And we explored this actually in one of the sermons in this series called It's Just a Job. God has called us to create and recreate. So yes, there's a sense in which newer is better and that God has called us to take what he has given us and to make it better in this world. But while things, while new things aren't bad necessarily, the, the thing that I want us to consider here is that new things aren't good enough. That while new things aren't bad, we shouldn't shy away from technology, we shouldn't shy away from progress, but what we need to see, and this is maybe where there's more pushback, is that new things aren't good enough. I think the point where this narrative, that newer is better, the point where it starts to break down is found in the assumption that the more we progress, the closer we get to life as it ought to be. We get closer to perfection. We get closer to ending the problems of humanity. But what this presupposes is that we know what it is that plagues humanity. To say that progress is getting us closer to the solution implies that we know what is fundamentally wrong with us. But do we? 
I mean, do we know what actually at the core is our ultimate problem? Is it, is it a lack of education? Is it, is it a neurochemical or psychological imbalance? Is it, is it a lack of economic opportunities? Like, what is it that fundamentally creates the problems in our world? If we don't truly know the problem, then how on earth can we claim to know the solution? And so that's why this narrative, newer is better, kind of falls apart because it assumes it knows the problem when in fact we don't know ultimately what plagues us. There's no consensus. And when you look at the opening chapters of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 3, we see that even from the very beginning, the origin of sin and death and evil really finds its origin in this this temptation to believe that, that what you need is better knowledge, that you need to advance beyond God to be to be able to solve the problems that you are facing. And this is what the serpent tempted Adam and Eve with in Genesis 3 verses 4 and 5. As we read it says, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. So he's casting doubt on God's word, on God's design. For God knows that when you eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so what we see here is that the origin of sin, the origin of death and evil itself is rooted in this false understanding that says what we need is just better knowledge. We, the reason we're limited and held back, the reason there's dissonance and disunity and division in our world is because we just haven't progressed, advanced, evolved quite enough. But here's the thing. If we don't fundamentally know what the problem is, not only do we not know the solution, we don't know if our progress is actually mitigating or magnifying the problem. If we don't know what the problem is, then how do we know what the solution is? And how do we know that our progress isn't making things worse in certain ways? Sure, we're making progress in, 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 in science and technology and medicine, but is there any real consensus on what it is that we're progressing towards? Like, well, what is the end goal? Is it world peace? And if so, if it's world peace, by, by whose terms? Who determines and defines world peace? I mean, are, are, we, are we seeking to get to a place where there's, there's great economic stability? I mean, who's going to oversee that and ensure that that takes place in our world? The, the point of this is to say is that if we do not know the purpose of our progress, then what that means is that, that progress without purpose is pointless. If we don't know the purpose of what we're progressing towards, if we don't know the great end, the goal, then our progress without purpose is pointless. Now, again, has, has, has science and technology and medicine, has it solved problems in our world? Absolutely. Absolutely. There have been many things that, in which our lives are better today because of the work of so many in progressing things in the area of science and technology. But we would be naive to think that with the advent of every new piece of technology, that it doesn't come with its own new sets of problems. For example, I mean, the classic example, the splitting of the nucleus of the atom, the hope that this would bring heat and light in more accessible and affordable ways for the planet. But what it also brought was the, the development of the atomic bomb that brought death and destruction and reciprocal hatred in our planet. Or to think more of a contemporary example of, of the advent of smartphones and social media, are these good things? Well, I mean, yes and no. I mean, how do you know? Well, yeah, like our lives are easier. We're, we're able to work more efficiently. I can communicate with friends and family across the globe. I can share ideas and resources. But with that, we now have the reality of cyberbullying. We now have access to pornography in ways that our culture never had prior to this, de- uh, this age of technology. We, we, we're at a place where we dilute meaningful relationships because we expect more from technology than we do from real people. 
I'm saying this not again to, to say that we should just throw away technology and disregard it, but I want us to recognize that with every proposed progressive solution we create, we find a way to create a new set of problems and we find a way to use our progress for destruction. And that's because the people behind our progress, all of us, you and me, we possess the capability of evil and good, which is why all of our progress results in things that have the capability of evil and good. All of the advancements in our world, all of the progress and, and inventions, they will not and indeed cannot solve our fundamental problem. And the reason why is because, and we've said this before at Christ Community, is that the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. That the, the fundamentally what is wrong with us is not a lack of knowledge or lack of resources or experience. The problem of the, the, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. Sure, we might be able to get to a point where we minimize violent crimes and maybe even eradicate murder, but, but are we able to solve the problem of hatred in our hearts that we feel towards others? We might be able to, to end global sex trafficking, but, but does that get us any closer to remedying our lust problems? We might be able to make cancer a thing of the past, but, but is there a vaccine for death itself? There is progress, but it is not addressing the heart of the problem. Our problem is not that we lack knowledge, it's not that we lack experience or lack resources. The problem is that you and I are cursed, which sounds like really like fanciful, like fantasy literature language. I get that. But the reality is our problem is rooted in something far deeper than just a lack of resources. Doesn't it, I mean, doesn't it feel as though that there's a sense in which what plagues us is deeper than what we can identify and point to? It's something that transcends us. Doesn't it feel, as one person once said, doesn't it feel as though someone out there is laughing at us from a transcendent point of view? What we have to see is that the reason all of our progress, the reason why newer isn't good enough, is because our problem is that we are cursed. And, and we may, some of you may look at Genesis as just a collection of fairy tales and it's just silly, how could you believe in a book like that? And I, I get that, I understand the pushback and the critique there, but but I think if we thoughtfully and carefully read the opening chapters of Genesis, we find that it provides an explanation to what we feel and experience in our world in ways that other sources and other ideas and worldviews don't address. And what we see in the opening chapters of Genesis, particularly Genesis 3, is that we are cursed. And what we see first is that we are personally cursed. We are personally cursed. What, what Genesis teaches us is that your problem and my problem is very much a personal problem, that there is a personal brokenness that you and I feel. We feel a dissonance even within ourselves. We feel that, that we're not even honest and true to who we claim to be, that there's an inconsistency with who I claim to be with my family and who I claim to be with people at work and with my neighbors. We don't feel a sense of wholeness and completion within ourselves. There is a dissonance and a divide, and it's because the way Genesis explains it, the reason we feel this relational dissonance within ourselves is because we have rebelled against, we are separated from the fountainhead of all relationships, namely God himself. And that's why in Genesis 3, we see the, the results of this separation, of this rebellion against the source of all relationships in verses 9 and 10. This is after Adam and Eve have eaten of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it says, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? 
Now, that's not because God can't see them. It's, it's a way for the author of Genesis to say there is now no longer intimacy. There's no longer whole transparency. God cannot see Adam and find him to show that there's been a, a, a severing in the relationship. And he says, where are you? And Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And so what we see here is right after the rebellion against God's holy good standard, we see Adam and Eve feeling a sense of shame, a, feel of, a sense of disconnect from the source of goodness and life and truth. And the shame that they feel is because they have been separated from the one, the source of all relationships. And, 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 this, and we see that immediately after, after the fall, after the rebellion, what takes place in the garden is that Adam and Eve begin to feel shame and it leads to blame, which results in more pain. And we, and we see it in, in verses 12 and 13. Look, look, look what Adam says. The man, so when God calls Adam, like, what did you do? What's going on? Adam says, the, the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Now notice what happens here. The moment Adam is called before God, like, what, what did you do? What's going on? Adam blames Eve he shifts the blame to his wife. What, what a noble, noble man in this moment. But he blames Eve, and then in the same breath, he blames God. He says, the woman, actually the woman who you gave to me, like, like he's putting it back on God. The creator of life and the giver of all good things, Adam has the audacity to claim to his creator that the problem is actually his. And then God calls to Eve, like, well, what did you do? What's going on? What's your take of the situation? And then Eve shifts the blame and blames the serpent and does not take responsibility. And this pattern starts to be established, a pattern of, of shame that leads to blame of others, that leads to more pain, and then it just leads us all the way back to shame again. And we find ourselves in this sick, cyclical pattern of shame, of blame, of pain and it continues on. We are personally cursed and we feel it deep within our hearts. The reason why there's dissonance personally and within relationships is because we've been severed from the source of all relationships. But just because we're cursed personally, it doesn't mean that we are no less cursed corporately. And, and this is something I think maybe we miss. We don't have the imagination for. We, we get the idea that people are broken, that, that people do bad things, and maybe people are even bad people inherently. Maybe we can buy that. But what we don't always see is that there is a corporate nature to the curse. Remember, God created humans in his image, which means many things, but one of which is that we were created for community, for relationships, and to create and the image of God in us has been, has been fractured, although not entirely destroyed, so we still possess the desire for community and relationships, but we now use it in broken ways. And so we come together to form cultures and cities and corporations and governments and societies and neighborhoods, but now we possess the ability to use these corporate entities and organizations and, and, and sub, uh, contexts for both good and evil. Broken individuals, cursed personally, come together and are cursed corporately and wreak havoc upon our world. Uh, two years ago, we, we hosted a conference called uh, Common Good 2015, uh, and, we're, and it's coming back up again 20, uh, 2017 in October. Uh, and I encourage you to, to participate, but two years ago, Brian Fickert, Dr. Brian Fickert, who's the director of the Chalmers Center for Economic Development, 
And the author of the book, When Helping Hurts, he spoke at our conference, and speaking on this issue of kind of corporate corruption, he says this, broken individuals create broken social structures. We've got broken economic, political, religious, and social structures. And he goes on to say, those broken systems, including the broken economic system, impose themselves on us. We create broken systems, and broken systems further break us. Now, in some ways, we can, we can see this. Okay, I can, I can get the idea that, that a corporation could be corrupt, a government could be corrupt, uh, a, a society could be corrupt. But what we don't see is how we all, in certain ways, are complicit in that corporate corruption, in the corporate cursing of humanity coming together and using its collaborative brokenness to perpetuate evil in the world. Yes, there's capability of great good, But because of our personally cursed nature, we also now possess the ability to be a corporate curse in this world. Now, let me say one thing about this. While there's part of us that can see this kind of corporate cursing, we need to see that we are complicit in it in some way, shape, or form. What we struggle to see is seeing how we as individuals are complicit in creating broken structures in perpetuating things like poverty, like racial divide, like family breakdown, like the destruction of of, of school systems and things like that. And Fickard himself, he goes on to say this very pointedly, I might add. He says, there is one people group in America that is the least likely to believe that oppressive systems are contributing to poverty. And that people group are Caucasian evangelical Christians. And he says, shame on us. The prophets of old, they rail against systemic injustice, and the injustice doesn't have to be intentional. There is intentional injustice, but even when nobody is trying to hurt anybody, the fall happened. Now, it should be said, Figured himself is a Caucasian evangelical male, and so he's, he's speaking to his own kind, so to speak. But his point here is, is this, is that it's not enough for us to simply say, well, well I have never you know, directly made someone poor, or I have never directly uh, hurled a a racial slur at someone, or I have not been complicit directly because uh, creating a a broken educational system, and so, so I don't see why I should be held accountable or responsible. But what we have to understand is that you and I were created, yes, as individuals, but also as a community. We were designed in this way, and so there is great potential for good on an individual level and corporate level, and there's a potential for evil on an individual, individual and corporate level. And what we also have to see is that you and I are guilty of what we call sins of commission and sins of omission, meaning that we are guilty of, of sins of commission. We, we do what we shouldn't do, but we are also guilty of sins of omission in that we don't do what we should do. And in many ways, it's our sins of omission that do play a part in the corporate corruption and evil that we see communally in our world. Sin is not just manifested in activity, but it is also manifested in passivity, in not being engaged, in allowing evil to progress. Sin is not just a personal reality, it is a corporate reality. And if we fail to see this, we will fail to properly diagnose the problem of the human condition. And we will fail to properly lead ourselves to the right solution to address what it is that plagues us. If you think about it, even looking at Genesis 4, right after the fall, what happens? We have the first murder on a personal level, Cain killing his brother Abel. And then what does Cain do? He goes and he builds a city. 
And that city, it produces art and music and, and there's development and technology, but it also leads to a corrupt, organiza- a corrupt society where murder and, 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 and abuse and corruption takes place on a large scale. And so right after Genesis 3, what do we see? Personally cursed people leading to corporately cursed organizations and cultures. I say all of this just to remind us that newer is not good enough. It cannot solve our problems. Our collective and collaborative efforts as a species will not and indeed cannot solve our problem because you can't solve the problem with the thing that caused the problem. We can't be the answer to our prayers. We can't be the solution to our problem. We need something beyond ourselves. Which is why, although new things aren't good enough, I would be remiss if I didn't point us to the fact that all things, the hope we have is that all things will be made new. While new things aren't good enough, the hope that the biblical narrative gives us is that all things will be made new. While the story of Genesis 3 is bleak and kind of, kind of dark and hopeless, what we see is in the middle of these curses being delivered by God upon creation, upon humanity, we also see God's promise that this curse will not be the last word in creation. And in Genesis 3.15, we see these words as God is declaring the curse on the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This verse is referred to in theology, it's called the Proto-Euangelion, which is just cool. You can impress friends if you say that really, you know, confidently. But what it means is the first gospel. In Genesis 3.15, God is declaring his promise to do something about evil, sin, death, and injustice. The moment it enters the world, God says, I'm going to do something about it. It is the promise that although death entered the world through the first woman, it is the promise that life will come through another woman later on down the road. It is the promise that although a curse came to all of humanity through the first Adam, it is the promise that one will come to be the curse for us and bring righteousness and salvation. It is the promise that is fulfilled in the flesh, in the person of Jesus, who entered our world to be the fulfillment of what God declared in Genesis 3, And it is the promise that he will return to destroy the presence of evil once and for all as he establishes and makes all things new, which is the promise, the progress, the goal that we see in the last book of the Bible in Revelation 21. We see the progress, we see the direction that God is working in history and building everything towards. And it is not this disembodied, ethereal realm that we go to and play harps and clouds. It is the restoration of this world that God has promised that he will not abandon And we see this beautiful promise in Revelation 21. As the Apostle John, in his vision given by the Lord, sees this. I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. From the moment sin entered the world, God was already at work in restoring, in reversing the effects of the fall. His, His goal was to bring humanity back to the garden, so to speak, where the tree of life is at the center of existence. If you remember in the the garden, the center of the garden is the tree of life. And as you continue to read in Revelation, in Revelation 22, what do we see in the new Jerusalem, in the new heavens and the new earth? In the center of the city is the tree of life. 
And so really, when you step back and look at the narrative of Scripture, what God has been doing throughout history, he's essentially getting us from one tree to the next, moving us from the garden, the tree of life that we lost, and moving us to the tree of life that is in the new Jerusalem, the new city. This is the progress. This is the goal. This is the narrative that we see being told and unveiled for us. But if we, are, if we aren't careful, we will miss how we get from this tree to this tree. Because really, the story of Scripture is about three trees. It's the story of going from the tree of life that we lost in the garden to the tree in the new Jerusalem. And the pathway from that tree to this is through the tree of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. That the way we find a new life, the way we find the pathway and the promise to life everlasting and all things made new and restored is through the cross of Jesus by which he became the curse for us so that the curse might be reversed. As the Apostle Paul says so boldly in Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So no, new things aren't bad. They aren't inherently bad. There's great things to celebrate and give thanks to God for. But new things, if we're honest, they're not good enough. They're not sufficient because our root problem is that we are cursed, both personally and corporately. But the good news that we have is that Jesus lived and died for us personally and corporately. He did this to make us a new people. He didn't just die for you and me as individuals, but he died to make us a new people. And so what all this means is, as we bring this to a close is that, yes, we should by all means continue to work, continue to create and invent and, and cultivate with what God has given us. And we should seek to do it with excellence to love and care for others. But we must also see the, the inability of our progress and work to bring about what only God can do. Our work of creating new things will not ultimately be good enough. But the good news is that God's work is good enough. So may we continue to do our work well in whatever God has called us to as we trust in the work of Christ on our behalf, the one who is good enough and the one who promises to make all things new. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you asking that you would show us where we are deluded and arrogant in our thinking that, that we possess and hold the solution to our problems. Lord, I do want to recognize the work of so many and the way in which you have been at work throughout history in truly progressing and advancing your world and advancing your kingdom. But Lord, help us to see that our, our good works are not good enough. May we continue to do them well, Lord, but may we see that Jesus is the one through his life, death, and resurrection is what enables us to find the hope that all things will be made due. Lord, may we look forward to that day. May we see that goal and may it motivate us to live our lives of faithfulness and fruitfulness, honoring you. Lord, we, we entrust our lives to you and we pray and look forward to the day when all things will be made new. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As Reed said, this marks the end of a series. We've got eight weeks, though, left until this start of Advent. So if you're kind of tracking with us, so it's kind of some, some how, how our calendar works. We're going to be in, in Jeremiah the next, the next eight weeks together. Uh, it's a big book, but we're going to center in, kind of look at some, some of the key places along the way. Jeremiah is such an interesting prophet. He's often called the weeping prophet, a very difficult time in Israel's history. Uh, and really, the, one of the themes that, that has stuck out to me already as I've studied and what I'm really excited about for, for next week, uh, and essentially, like, you can boil Jeremiah down, I think to this, like if you, if you think you can handle your life, uh, you're doing it wrong. 
Uh, like life is meant to be bigger, harder. Like we, we have such narrow focus. We think that we can handle it. Uh, but what God is calling Jeremiah to, what he calls us as his people to, is so much bigger, so much harder that we are driven constantly uh, to faith before him. So I hope, I hope you come. hope you join us. Be a part of that with us. In fact, I want to end by, by reading just a little bit of Jeremiah, one of our passages later on uh, down uh, the way for us. Because as we talked about this morning, you know, newer is not always better. We, we tend to think that. And I love, I love new. I love new things. Uh, and yet, it's, it's not the newness that's the problem. It's, the, it's this subtle belief that we have that somehow we're going to fix our problem, right? Uh, that we're going to overcome it. We're going to live forever. We're going we're gonna to one day make utopia here on earth. Uh, and we see that what we need is something so much more than that. Uh, and what Jeremiah promises God's people is a new covenant, a new heart, a new way. And so hear these words as we go. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with my people, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them up by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Amen. Go in peace to love and serve your neighbors.